Chapter 15 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 10. By John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 15 the fate of the assassins booth had done his work efficiently his principal subordinate the young floridian called payne had acted with equal audacity and cruelty but not with equally fatal result he had made a shambles of the residence of the secretary of state but among all his mangled victims there was not one killed at eight o'clock that night he received his final orders from booth who placed in his hands a knife and revolver and a little package like a prescription and taught him a lesson payne was a young man hardly of age of herculean strength a very limited mental capacity blindly devoted to booth who had selected him as the fitting instrument of his mad hatred he obeyed the orders of his fascinating senior as exactly and remorselessly as a steel machine at precisely the moment when booth entered the theatre payne came on horseback to the door of mr seward's residence on lafayette square dismounting he pretended to be a messenger from the attending physician with a package of medicine and demanded immediate access to the sick-room of the secretary mr seward had been thrown from his carriage a few days before and his right arm and jaw were fractured the servant at the door tried to prevent payne from going up the stairs but he persisted and the noise the two men made in mounting brought his son frederick w seward out into the hall the secretary had been very restless and had with difficulty at last been composed to sleep fearing that this restorative slumber might be broken frederick seward came out to check the intruders he met payne at the head of the stairs and after hearing his story bade him go back offering himself to take charge of the medicine payne seemed for an instant to give up his purpose in the face of this unexpected obstacle but suddenly turned and rushed furiously upon frederick seward putting a pistol to his head it missed fire and he then began beating him on the head with it tearing his scalp and fracturing his skull still struggling the two came to the secretary's room and fell together through the door frederick seward soon became unconscious and remained so for several weeks being perhaps the last man in the civilized world who learned the strange story of the night the secretary lay on the farther side of the bed from the door in the room was his daughter and a soldier nurse sergeant g f robinson they both sprang up at the noise of the disturbance payne struck them right and left out of his way wounding robinson with his knife then rushed to the bed and began striking at the throat of the crippled statesman inflicting three terrible wounds in his cheek and neck the secretary rolled off between the bed and the wall robinson had by this time recovered himself and seized the assassin from behind trying to pull him away from the bed 
he fought with the quickness of a cat stabbing robinson twice severely over his shoulder in spite of which the sergeant still held on to him bravely colonel augustus seward roused by his sister's screams came in his nightdress into the room and seeing the two forms in this deadly grapple thought at first his father was delirious and was struggling with the nurse but noting in a moment the size and strength of the man he changed his mind and thought that the sergeant had gone mad and was murdering the secretary nothing but madness was at first thought of anywhere to account for the night's work he seized Payne and after a struggle forced him out of the door the assassin stabbing him repeatedly about the head and face Payne broke away at last and ran rapidly downstairs seriously wounding an attendant named hansel on the way he reached the door unhurt leaped upon his horse and rode leisurely out vermont avenue to the eastern suburb when surgical aid arrived the quiet house ordinarily so decorous and well-ordered the scene of an affectionate home life and an unobtrusive hospitality looked like a field hospital five of its inmates were bleeding from ghastly wounds and two of them among the highest officials of the nation it was thought might never see the light of another day though all providentially recovered the assassin left behind him in his flight his blood-stained knife his revolver or rather the fragments of it for he had beaten it to pieces over the head of frederick seward and his hat this last apparently trivial loss cost him and one of his fellow conspirators their lives for as soon as he had left the immediate scene of his crime his perceptions being quickened by a murderer's avenging fears it occurred to him that the lack of a hat would expose him to suspicion wherever he was seen so instead of making good his escape he abandoned his horse and hid himself for two days in the woods east of washington driven by hunger he at last resolved to return to the city to the house on h street which had been the headquarters of the conspiracy he made himself a cap from the sleeve of his woolen shirt threw over his shoulder a pickaxe he had found in a trench and coming into town under cover of the darkness knocked about midnight at mrs surratt's door as his fate would have it the house was full of officers who had that moment arrested all the inmates and were about to take them to the office of the provost marshal Payne thus fell into the hands of justice and the utterance of half a dozen words by him and the unhappy woman whose shelter he had sought was the death warrant of both being asked by major smith to give an account of himself he said he had been hired by mrs surratt to dig a drain for her she was called out and asked if she knew him not being aware of what he had said she raised her right hand with uncalled-for solemnity and said before god i do not know him never saw him and never hired him these words the evidence of a guilty secret shared between them started a train of evidence which led them both to the scaffold booth was recognized by dozens of people 
as he stood before the footlights and brandished his dripping dagger in a brutish attitude his swift horse quickly carried him beyond the reach of any haphazard pursuit he gained the navy yard bridge in a few minutes was hailed by a sentry but persuaded the sergeant of the guard that he was returning to his home in charles county and that he had waited in washington till the moon should rise he was allowed to pass and shortly afterwards harold came to the bridge and passed over with similar explanations a moment later the owner of the horse which harold rode came up in pursuit of his animal he the only honest man of the three was turned back by the guard the sergeant felt he must draw the line somewhere the assassin and his wretched acolyte came at midnight to mrs surratt's tavern booth whose broken leg was by this time giving him excruciating torture remained outside on his horse and harold went in shouting to the innkeeper to give him those things lloyd knowing what was meant without a word brought the whiskey carbines and field glass which the surrats had deposited there booth refused a gun being unable in his crippled condition to carry it harold told lloyd they had killed the president and they rode away leaving lloyd who was a sodden drunkard and contrabandist unnerved by the news and by his muddy perception of his own complicity in the crime he held his tongue for a day or two but at last overcome by fear told all that he knew to the authorities booth and harold pushed on through the moonlight to the house of an acquaintance of booth a rebel sympathizer a surgeon named samuel mudd the pain of his broken bone had become intolerable and day was approaching aid and shelter had become pressingly necessary mud received them kindly set booth's leg and gave him a room where he rested until the middle of the afternoon mud had a crutch made for him and in the evening sent them on their desolate way to the south if booth had been in health there is no reason why he should not have remained at large a good while he might even have made his escape to some foreign country though sooner or later a crime so prodigious will generally find its perpetrator out but it is easy to hide among a sympathizing people many a union soldier escaping from prison walked hundreds of miles through the enemy's country relying implicitly upon the friendship of the negroes booth from the hour he crossed the navy yard bridge though he met with a considerable number of men was given shelter and assistance by every one whose sympathies were with the south after parting company with dr mudd he and harold went to the residence of samuel cox near port tobacco and were by him given into the charge of thomas jones a contraband trader between maryland and richmond a man so devoted to the interests of the confederacy that treason and murder seemed every day incidents to be accepted as natural and necessary he kept booth and harold in hiding at the peril of his own life for a week feeding and caring for them in the woods near his house 
watching for an opportunity to ferry them across the potomac he did this while every woodpath was haunted by government detectives while his own neighborhood was under strong suspicion knowing that death would promptly follow his detection and that a reward was offered for the capture of his helpless charge which would make a rich man of any one who gave him up so close was the search that harold killed the horses on which they had ridden out of washington for fear a neigh might betray their hiding-place with such devoted aid booth might have wandered a long way but there is no final escape but suicide for an assassin with a broken leg at each painful move the chances of discovery increased jones was indeed able after repeated failures to row his fated guests across the potomac arriving on the virginia side they lived the lives of hunted animals for two or three days longer finding to their horror that they were received by the strongest confederates with more of annoyance than enthusiasm though none indeed offered to betray them at one house while food was given him hospitality was not offered booth wrote the proprietor a note pathetic in its attempted dignity enclosing five dollars though hard to spare for his entertainment he had by this time seen the comments of the newspapers on his work and bitterer than death or wounds was the blow to his vanity he confided his feeling of wrong to his diary i struck boldly and not as the papers say i walked with a firm step through thousands of his friends was stopped but pushed on a colonel was at his side i shouted six semper before i fired in jumping broke my leg i passed all his pickets rode sixty miles that night with the bone of my leg tearing the flesh at every jump on friday the twenty first he writes after being hunted like a dog through swamps woods and last night chased by gunboats till i was forced to return wet cold and starving with every man's hand against me i am here in despair and why for doing what brutus was honored for what made tell a hero he goes on comparing himself favorably with these stage heroes and adds i struck for my country and that alone a country that groaned beneath his tyranny and prayed for this end and yet now behold the cold hand they extend to me he was especially grieved that the grand eloquent letter he had entrusted to his fellow actor matthews and which he in his terror had destroyed had not been published he thought the government had wickedly suppressed it he was tortured with doubts whether god would forgive him whether it would not be better to go back to washington and clear his name i am abandoned with the curse of cain upon me when if the world knew my heart that one blow would have made me great with blessings on his mother upon his wretched companion in crime and flight upon the world which he thought was not worthy of him he closed these strange outpourings saying i do not wish to shed a drop of blood but i must fight the course the course was soon ended 
at port conway on the rappahannock booth and herald met three young men in confederate uniforms they were disbanded soldiers but herald imagining that they were recruiting for the southern army told them his story with perfect frankness and even pride saying we are the assassinators of the president and asked their company into the confederate lines he was disappointed at learning that they were not going south but his confidence was not misplaced the soldiers took the fugitives to port royal and tried to get shelter for them representing booth as a wounded confederate soldier after one or two failures they found refuge on the farm of a man named garrett on the road to bowling green on the night of the twenty fifth of april a party under lieutenant e p doherty arrested in his bed at bowling green william jett one of the confederate soldiers mentioned above and forced him to guide them to garrett's farm booth and herald were sleeping in the barn when called upon to surrender booth refused and threatened to shoot young garrett who had gone in to get his arms a parley took place lasting some minutes booth offered to fight the party at a hundred yards and when this was refused cried out in a theatrical tone well my brave boys prepare a stretcher for me darty then told him he would fire the barn upon this harold came out and surrendered the barn was fired and while it was burning booth who was clearly visible by the flames through the cracks in the building was shot by boston corbett a sergeant of cavalry a soldier of a gloomy and fanatical disposition which afterwards developed into insanity booth was hit in the back of the neck not far from the place where he had shot the president he lingered about three hours in great pain conscious but nearly inarticulate and died at seven in the morning the surviving conspirators with the exception of john h surratt were tried by a military commission sitting in washington in the months of may and june the charges against them specified that they were incited and encouraged to treason and murder by jefferson davis and the confederate emissaries in canada this was not proved on the trial the evidence bearing on the case showed frequent communication between canada and richmond and the booth coterie in washington and some transactions and drafts at the montreal bank where jacob thompson and booth both kept their accounts it was shown by the sworn testimony of a reputable witness that jefferson davis at greensboro on hearing of the assassination expressed his gratification at the news but this so far from proving any direct complicity in the crime would rather prove the opposite as a conscious murderer usually conceals his malice against all the rest the facts we have briefly stated were abundantly proved though in the case of mrs surratt the repugnance which all men feel at the execution of a woman induced the commission to unite in a recommendation to mercy which president johnson then in the first flush of his zeal against traitors 
disregarded habeas corpus proceedings were then resorted to and failed in virtue of the president's orders to the military in charge of the prisoners the sentences were accordingly executed mrs surratt payne harold and azerot were hanged on the seventh of july mudd arnold and o'laughlin were imprisoned for life at the tortugas though the term was afterwards shortened and spangler the scene shifter at the theatre was sentenced to six years in jail john h surratt escaped to canada where he lay in hiding some months in a monastery and in the autumn sailed for england under an assumed name he wandered over europe enlisted in the papal zouaves deserted and fled to egypt where he was detected and brought back to washington in eighteen sixty seven his trial lasted two months and ended in a disagreement of the jury End of chapter 15 Recording by John Brandon